Welcome to the holiday edition of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government, and with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. We're recording this on Friday, December 17th. 2021 is coming to a close, Greg, so we wanted to offer some final thoughts on the year that was and a look ahead to what may come in the election year. After that, we'll welcome Kelly Burton, president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee to discuss where things stand in redrawing the district lines, most of which we'll be using for the next decade. We spoke with her Republican counterpart in an earlier podcast, so go check that one out later if you missed it. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Well, Greg, what a weird year. It started with Democrats pulling off narrow upsets in two Georgia Senate runoffs, which gave the party total control of Washington. Though, as we saw all year and now, as President Biden's signature legislation is being delayed until next year, there are limits to what you can do with two very narrow majorities. The stories of the year on Capitol Hill were the January 6th insurrection and electoral vote count, the power sharing agreement in the Senate, masks, metal detectors and member behavior issues in the House, the COVID relief package and the bipartisan infrastructure package, which both got done, the Build Back Better bill, voting rights, immigration, gun control, all of which didn't. That's all folding into setting up the dynamics for the 2022 election year. Greg, what did you see off the Hill in politics that's doing the same? Yeah, it's been quite a year, Kyle. Uh, Sometimes it seems like ages ago when I had those back-to-back all-nighters on uh, January 5th and 6th for the Georgia U.S. Senate runoffs and then the assault on the Capitol, the county of the electoral votes. But the euphoria of Democrats of winning unified control of the federal government soon gave way to the hard realities of governing with such slender majorities. As far as what I saw off Capitol Hill in politics in 2021, folks like us always like to watch so-called off-year elections or those held in odd-numbered years before national midterm election years uh, for any indications of which way the national political winds may be blowing. Are there any canaries in the coal mine? And neither party has really consistently overperformed in elections so far this year. We had you know, a special election in June in New Mexico where the Democratic victory margin kind of matched Joe Biden's victory margin. We had that recall election in California that pretty much matched the presidential returns in California once Democrats nationalized the election there in that Democratic stronghold. Um, but the biggest political races of 2021 came in November, uh, the race for Virginia governor, which Republican Glenn Youngkin won by two percentage points in a state Biden carried by 10 points one year earlier, and the election for New Jersey governor, which Governor Phil Murphy held for his party, but by a slender three-point margin in a state Biden won by 16 points. And Republicans made gains elsewhere on that day around the country. And Democrats can't afford that kind of underperformance in next November's elections. If Democratic-held districts that Biden won by the high single digits in 2020 become highly competitive in 2022, Kyle. Uh, Democrats could be in a world of hurt. Yes, they could. And, uh, you know, you look at Biden's uh, approval rating. I feel like it started to really go down over the summer uh, with the Afghanistan withdrawal and uh, COVID com- coming back. I mean, it was just a, just a turbulent summer that really 
change the trajectory for, for Biden's uh, presidency and for Democrats' uh, push on Capitol Hill to get their, um, all their agenda through. So, um, all right, well, let's, take a, let's talk a little bit about next year now. Um, I want to start with some of the major issues we're like, likely to see um, that'll be central in campaigns and that we're probably going to see in some TV ads. Uh, COVID, of course, I think is the big one. We're still trying to figure out this highly transmissible Omicron variant, uh, while vaccine, vaccine mandates, masks, schools are likely to be a big topic of discussion in politics. And beyond the human tragedy of it all, Biden and governors are going to be weighed down by the human fatigue of it all. Mass on, mass off, declaring independence from the coronavirus and then seeing two different variants rip through the country. Um, another big one, inflation. Republicans are already running on this and putting it squarely at the feet of Democrats. Uh, and they're going to double down if the Dems are able to pass that BBB bill early next year, which is a big if, I, I think. Um, but the economy and jobs plays into that as well. Uh, education, you talked about Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. Um, and this is tied to COVID. And we already saw, um, a, you know, Youngkin use it as a rallying message with parents in the suburbs. Remember, we thought Democrats had won back the suburbs. And all of a sudden, Youngkin uh, comes with this education message that really turned things on its head. Uh, and then the other big one, I think, that um, people should pay attention to is abortion rights. Texas's new restrictive uh, law, uh, the Mississippi case uh, that's at the Supreme Court, you know, I don't think anyone should undervalue what kind of galvanizing effect this could have for a lot of voters. Um, and then I have question marks for my last one. Uh, what are Democrats going to run on? Um, I still don't think we know. I'm not sure they know. And I'm not sure there's going to be a central message. I, I, I think you could see different messages depending on the district, depending on the part of the country. Um, obviously, we still don't have district lines, but... Um, you know, and it, a lot of it depends on if BBB gets done because they have a lot of things in there, the child tax credit, all these things they, they you know, they want to do for um, the social safety net. It's all big question marks. We don't know if it's actually going to get done. So, uh, Greg, what about you? What are the biggest political stories on your radar in the midterm election year? Well, we've got lots of uh, pitch contests for the House and the Senate. Both are very closely divided. Democrats have just a five seat majority in the House and the Senate as we all know, is 50-50. And I just, you know, can Democrats defy history and avoid the magnitude of election losses that usually befall the White House's party in midterm election years? Democrats have one of the smallest House majorities in modern history. And whether they can hold it, and it's looking unlikely at least a year out or less than a year out, will depend a lot on President Biden's approval rating and how he manages issues like you mentioned, the pandemic and the economy. The only post-World War II presidents whose party made gains in the House in midterm election were Bill Clinton in 1998 and George W. Bush in 2002, and their approval ratings were above 60% at the time. Ronald Reagan in late 1986 had an approval rating above 60%, and Republicans limited their seat losses in the House that year to five seats. Democrats next year can't even afford to lose five seats. Um, they can lose four, but not five. Right now, Biden's approval rating is in the low to mid-40s, about where Barack Obama was in 2010 and where Bill Clinton was in 1994. Now, Democrats aren't going to suffer as catastrophic losses as those two presidents uh, did for a variety of reasons, and Biden still has time to recover. Uh, but uh, Democrats really need his approval rating to improve um, because midterm elections are usually referenda on the sitting president. Some other big political stories to watch. You mentioned congressional redistricting. We still need uh, maps in a bunch of states. What are these district lines going to look like? 
Uh, who else is going to retire in lieu of seeking re-election? Will Democratic retirements intensify ahead of what could be an unfavorable election year for them? What kind of candidates do Republicans nominate? How much will Donald Trump intervene in the Republican primaries? And to what extent will Republican candidates try and copycat Trump's style or ingratiate themselves with him because either they want to or they feel a political imperative that they, they have to? Um, most districts will be decided in the Democratic and Republican primaries. And as we mentioned, we've got that 50-50 Senate that could very well flip along with the House. Um, just uh, You've got 20 seats that Republicans are defending compared to just 14 for Democrats. But most of the seats Republicans are defending, including the ones where they have retirees, um, are pretty safely Republican. Most of them are. And Democrats have tough holds in states like Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. And, uh, you know, finally, uh, we should be mindful of the 36 elections for governor and the thousands of elections for state legislature and other offices. You know, following down-ballot elections, that's how we roll here at Down-Ballot Counts. If there are any reporters listening, you just got about 25 story ideas, so you're welcome. Um, we will definitely be tracking all that next year here on the podcast and at Bloomberg Government, so uh, definitely uh, keep tuning in. Um, but we're not done yet. We want to talk some more redistricting. This is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. Okay, let's welcome to the pod Kelly Burton, president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee and a past executive director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Of course, happy to be here. All right, so let's start with the basics. How did the NDRC come about and and what's the committee's central mission and responsibility? Well, uh, as you all know, because I think you've talked about this in previous uh, shows, the Republicans really took um, to extreme measures the gerrymandering of last decade, where they really had a concerted effort in 2011 to um, use the power of the pen that they achieved through the 2010 elections and maximize the gerrymandering in the places where they had control. And the result of that was essentially a decade of Congress and state legislatures, um, you know, being elected in gerrymandered districts and, and you know, running um, our legislative bodies under gerrymandered um, legislatures. And we saw the, the ramifications of that in policy, in the polarization and the dysfunctions in Congress. And so what you saw, you know, in 2016 and, and you know, halfway through the decade was Democrats and progressives really uh, seeing the implications of that and wanting to make sure that we were ready for the next round of redistricting. Um, and particularly, you know, President Obama and former Attorney General Eric Holder, um, you know, really saw firsthand what it was like to deal with a, a, a Congress that was gerrymandered and, and really polarized. And so they wanted to do everything that they could to make sure that we were ready for the rest, next round of redistricting and to not have the next decade of, um, of, of gerrymandered Congress and gerrymandered state legislatures like we saw the last decade. So um, the, the NDRC was created to be that centralized hub for a comprehensive redistricting strategy to make sure that we were putting in place all of the things that you can do to um, to address redistricting, to prevent Republican gerrymandering, and um, and to get fair maps in the country, and that is our central charge. Yeah, I mean, President Obama, who you just mentioned, I mean, he's got to be scarred from 2011, um, seeing how a party can really cement its majority when it draws the lines. How helpful has his involvement been in terms of like raising money and awareness and 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 just sort of 
putting an impetus on on this uh, issue. Yeah, you said it exactly right. You know, you can you can really see the impact that it has on our nation and and on Congress and on state legislatures when the the outcomes of the elections are predetermined by the map, which is what gerrymandering is, right? It's it's a, a, a disregard for the voters and it puts the electoral uh, outcomes in the in the hands of the map drawers instead of in the hands of the voters. And when that happens, the elected officials don't have accountability, right? Because the voters don't then get to hold them accountable uh, if they are making decisions and, and taking votes that are outside of what the voters want. And, and that is like the real fundamental problem with gerrymandering um, is, is that the incentive structure and the accountability is misplaced. In a democracy, it should be with the voters. In gerrymandered maps, it is with the map drawers. And, and um, you know, President Obama saw that firsthand. Um, A.G. Holder saw that firsthand. Certainly Speaker Pelosi saw that firsthand. I personally was at the DCCC for a good chunk of the last decade and also saw that firsthand, both, you know, the difficulty in, in winning races um, and, and also in just watching the, the real increase in polarization in Congress. So, um, so yes, that is the, the heart of the problem. And, and to your question about President Obama, he's been incredibly helpful um, since the beginning and throughout um, in, in just, you know, all of the things um, from fundraising to strategy to, um, you know, really helping to raise awareness about the importance of this issue, uh, which, as you guys know, is, you know, can be kind of wonky, can be maybe kind of um, technical and, and trying to help lift up from the, the details to understand the, the purpose and the reason why redistricting is so important, why gerrymandering is so problematic. Um, he's been helpful, um, you know, from the beginning in that regard. So this time around, uh, Republicans obviously control the line drawing in a lot more um, districts, states than Democrats. Uh, I, I want to like take one example, like Texas. Um, what were Republicans able to do to help themselves there? And, and, and how much does this reality kind of affect the fight for the House majority? Well, stepping back first on, on just what the Republicans are doing in the states where they control the map, they have actively said that their goal is to take the House majority for the decade through redistricting. That is their goal. And they are doing that in a couple of ways in the map. Um, the first is that they are completely disregarding the um, the public testimony and, and the kind of public participation piece of, of redistricting. That's number one. Number two is in the maps itself, they are really disregarding the um, communities of color and the growing impact of communities of color that we saw in the census data. They are what we call packing and cracking those communities of color where they put them into, um, you know, a, a, either a few number of districts and, or they, they crack communities of color in across multiple districts in order to dilute the voting power um, of, the, of those communities. And the result of that, and this is intentional on their part, is a decrease in the total number of competitive seats, right? They, they don't want the voters to be the determinant uh, factor for the elections. And the way to do that is to make the, the, the districts less and less competitive. Um, you know, some of those competitive seats um, are going to, to Democrats and some are going to Republicans, but the overall strategy of theirs is to intentionally decrease the, uh, the number of competitive seats, um, largely through diluting the power of the vote through commu of, of communities of color. 
Texas is a prime example of that strategy because essentially what they did is they eliminated 10 of the 11 competitive districts that had been in the previous map. Um, in the new map, uh, out of 38 districts in the state of Texas, only one would be considered competitive. Um, and, and overall, the map really does discriminate against Black and Latino voters um, through that packing and cracking strategy. So, um, you know, you you saw them lock in the um, the seats in Texas that we have seen get more and more competitive over the decade, and and try to just give them you know as many seats as they can, give the Democrats as few seats as they can, and take the competitive seats in the state completely off the table. And let me add one other thing that I think Texas is also a really good example for. Um, you know, the census data is the roadmap for redistricting, right? Because the reason we redistrict is to adjust the the um, the, the congressional and legislative districts of this country to reflect where the voters are and how they changed over the course of the decade, right? So you, you can know that a map is fair when it is directionally in line with what the census data says should happen. And the reason that Texas got two new seats in reapportionment, in, you know, so two more seats in Congress for this decade than last decade, was because of the growth and 95% of that growth came from communities of color. So what you should see in the map in Texas is an increase in districts where communities of color have an, an ability to elect candidates of their choice and have the ability to influence the outcome of the election. And instead, what the Republicans did, which is incredibly absurd, is they actually increased the number of majority white districts and decreased the number of districts where communities of color have the ability to elect a candidate of their choice, which, which is the fundamental basis of our lawsuit in Texas. We're, we're suing them for that. Um, but anyway, just to give you a sense, um, you know, I think Texas, to your point, is a good example of their overall strategy. Uh, Kelly, you said the NDRC seeks fair maps. How do you define a fair map? Uh, it's a it's a really good question, um, and I think you know I, I wish that there was one easy you know one one stop shop metric that would allow you to say this is fair and this is not. It's not that easy in redistricting because there are a lot of factors that you have to take into account when you build a map. Um, you know how does it affect communities of color? How does it affect communities of interest generally in that state? Um, you know, is it commiserate with the preferences of the voters? Um, you know, does it reflect the will of the voters and, and the, um, you know, the reality of that state? There's a lot to look at. And there's a lot of metrics and, and you know, mathematicians that have developed factors and lawyers who've interpreted, um, you know, uh, uh, fairness. The bottom line is that you should have a fair map is a map that reflects the will of the voters, where the voters in that state can determine the outcome of the elections and, and said differently, the election outcomes reflect the will of what the voters want, right? If you're in line with that, um, you know, you're on your way to a fair map. And, and that is where you really can see the Republican gerrymandering in action because it goes against the direction of the census data. It goes against the direction of what the voters want the elections to look like. Um, and, and it really is designed to lock in political power outside of what the voters want. Um, you know, you look at North Carolina, for example, where it's a 50-50 state, uh, right? It, uh, the North Carolina elected um, Donald Trump narrowly. It elected President Obama narrowly. It has Republican senators, Democratic governors. It is a 50-50 state. And the map that the Republicans drew was a 10-4 
map, 10 Republican seats and four Democratic seats, that is completely outlined with what the voters in North Carolina are telling you they want in the election results. And so, um, you know, that's an example of how you can look at it and say, well, just right out of the gate, that map is not fair. Um, so that's, a, you know, a little bit of insight into how to look for a fair map. And Democrats have, you know, condemned uh, Republicans of rampant partisan gerrymandering in Texas and North Carolina. But how do you counter Republican criticism that Democratic drawn maps in states like Illinois, Maryland and New Mexico show that your party is doing the same thing? I think it's a holistically different thing. Um, Again, going back to what I said about the census data and about what are the types of election outcomes that the voters are telling you that they want. Right. And, And in those states that you named, um, the the maps are directionally in line with what the census data should happen, says should happen in those states. You know, if you look at Illinois, for example, the census data says that um, the population growth happened in the city and in the suburbs. The population loss happened in the rural areas and in downstate Illinois. Um, the census data showed that there was an increase in the number of Latino voters, um, you know, an increase in, in communities of color generally across the state. And the Illinois map reflects that. You know, I you, you have to talk to the Illinois legislature about why they drew the map they did. I don't know. But if you just look at directionally where the map is headed uh, and, and where the state of Illinois is, you know, the map is in line with that. It's not working against that, like what you see in the Republican states. Similarly, in Maryland and New Mexico, um, you know, the Maryland map protects the two VRA black majority districts um, that are in the state of Maryland and also grew the influence of communities of color in other districts across the state, which is in line with the census data. Um, the Maryland map is also likely a status quo map. It's a 7-1 map um, next decade as it was this past decade, which is, again, summarily different than what you're seeing the Republicans do in Texas and North Carolina um, and Georgia, where they're actively decreasing the number of Democratic Democratic seats. And, and you know, New Mexico, um, the folks on the ground were very intentional about getting feedback from the community. The public was really involved in that process. They had a commission, even though they didn't have to. They they um they actually put in place an advisory commission in New Mexico to hear from the public. And the map that was passed um, is is gets has a lot of support from the Native American community, from the Latino community, um, you know, from the voters in the state, which I think is you know why the governor signed it. And so, um, you know, it's again, it's just it's a different thing than uh, what you're seeing the Republicans do, where it's a disregard for the voters in order to hold on to their power. And how does the 2021-2022 round of redistricting compare to the 2011-2012 round of redistricting? I think it's Republican gerrymandering on steroids. <laughs> I think they learned a ton. I, I would say that 2011, 2012 was maybe V1 for them. And, um, and you know, 2021 is the, the souped up uh, V2 version. Um, you know, I think that 2020, 2011 was the first time that map drawers really had sophisticated data that allowed them to draw maps with surgical precision. And, um, they did that, right? They used their power and they drew the maps with surgical precision using these new data tools. I think what you're seeing now is, um, is you know, certainly ramped up data tools uh, over the course of the decade. But even more than that, they saw what, how, how much the Republican Party is actually going against 
the trend lines of this nation and how they know that they get in trouble over the course of the decade because the growth of this country um, and just the kind of natural trajectory of where this country is going and growing works against them, which is why over the course of the decade, you saw the, the districts, even in the states that they gerrymandered, you know, get a little better, the, um, become more competitive. And by 2018, you know, largely because of Trump, um, the Democrats were able to, to overcome that structural barrier of gerrymandering and take the House back. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the trend lines that, that also contributed to that in addition to Donald Trump. And, and they saw the um, the, I guess, the decreased impact of their gerrymandering over the course of the decade. That is why what they are doing this cycle is, is locking in the Republican seats and taking the competitive seats off the table. They're trying to not let that happen again, where the growth of the um, of the country can ultimately over time make those seats competitive. Uh, they, they don't want that to happen. And that's why you're seeing such a stark consolidation of, um, again, you know, Democrats and communities of color into a very few number of seats. And then the Republican neighboring seats get short up. That's, that's their strategy. And as we speak today, 21 states, give or take, have enacted new congressional maps pending legal action, of course. What are some states you're watching that are soon to finish congressional redistricting? Well, Georgia technically is not done because um, the governor hasn't signed that map. So that map, you know, he's supposed to do that by the end of the year. Uh, and I think that will be a, a big one where you'll see lawsuits as soon as that map is finished. Um, uh, I think um, there's going to be actually quite a number of states that, that finish in December, just in the next few weeks. Um, California, Arizona, um, Michigan are on that list. Uh, and then, you know, the two outstanding big states that, that we're watching in January are Florida and um, New York. Those are the big ones. But, you know, New Jersey is still outstanding. Um, there, are, there are a lot of big states uh, on the docket that are still going to be finishing their maps in the next one to three months. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Kelly, thank you so much for chatting with us. You are always welcome here and we'd love to have you back next year. All right, y'all. Talk to you later. This is Down Ballot Counts. Before we close the show, we've got a parting trivia shot that I'll attempt to answer on the spot. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each episode, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. We focused on congressional redistricting during this episode, so let's stay with that subject for the trivia question as well. So in the early 1980s, a California Democratic member of Congress at the time was the chief architect of a then-controversial congressional redistricting map that helped Democrats make gains in California and nationwide in 1982, the first midterm election of President Ronald Reagan. Kyle, who was that California Democratic member of Congress? Well, I was uh, a baby when this happened, but I'm going to go Phil Burton. Phil Burton is correct. Yes. He crafted the California Democratic Congressional Redistricting of the 1980s that shifted the state's House delegation from 22 to 21 Democratic after the 1980 election to 28 to 17 Democratic after the 1982 election. Burton served in the House from 1964 until his death, death in 1983, just 56, and was succeeded by his widow, Sala Burton, who passed away in 1987 and was succeeded by Nancy Pelosi, now Speaker of the House. Phil Burton also is the subject of a masterful biography called A Rage for Justice, written by the late John Jacobs. It's one of the best books on Congress you'll ever read. 
Jacobs's book referred to redistricting as Burton's, quote, first love, and also said, quote, when he was finished, critics and admirers alike called it the most brazen redistricting since 1812, when Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry's Jeffersonian minions put every Federalist they could find into one grotesquely shaped salamander-like district and created a new transitive verb to gerrymander, unquote. Now, some people pronounce that last word as gerrymander, but the cool redistricting kids know to pronounce it as gerrymander to be congruent with the last name of the former Massachusetts governor and vice president. And that's your trivia. Oh, that's the best. Only on a BeGov podcast. All right. That's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.begov.com. We'll talk to you next year. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.